This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible free for 30 days, go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, wildlife forensics and water divining. But first up, here's the news. Hoverboards at last? In the 1985 classic science fiction movie Back to the Future, Marty McFly travels 30 years into the future where he gets around on a hovering skateboard. On Kickstarter, a company called Hendo Hover have raised over $350,000 to develop and market their first attempt at a hoverboard based on rotating magnets and a conductive floor. Yes, just like the early Daleks from the 1960s Doctor Who, the Hendo Hover can only work on a conductive surface, specifically a non-ferromagnetic conductor like copper or aluminium. Basically, it's a high-power quadcopter with magnet spinning instead of rotors. The board has four hover motors. They work by spinning strong rare-earth magnets, which generate a current in the conductive surface by their movement, which in turn generates an opposing magnetic field. The magnets rotating and the magnetic field temporarily generated in the floor repel each other, and the skateboard hovers. Currently they hover around 2cm, which is enough to overcome friction. To make the magnets more effective, they're organised as a Halbach array, where the magnetic fields on one side cancel out, and on the other side reinforce, so you only have magnetic fields pointing in one direction. So how is this different from magnetic levitation trains? Maglev trains use superconducting magnets cooled by liquid nitrogen, which is a very expensive way to do things. The hover motors work with rare earth magnets at room temperature. In addition to their $10,000 hoverboard, the company are offering a cheaper $300 to $900 developer kit, which consists of a white box that hovers on one hover engine. The battery life is currently around 12 minutes, after which you have to spend another two hours recharging the battery. The white box can lift around 3 kilograms and it's designed to be taken apart, so you can incorporate it into your own gadgets. Otherwise, it's just a box that hovers above a metal plate. The company's also designing a hover park for its customers to ride their hoverboards. Apparently, this is mainly for publicity. The company sees itself making the big bucks marketing the magnetic levitation technology to the mainstream for use in hospitals and buildings endangered by earthquakes. Henderson is an architect, and his first idea for magnetic levitation was for buildings to be cushioned against earthquakes. 
The hoverboard happens to be scheduled for demonstration on October 21st, 2015, which happens to be the date in the future that Marty and the Doc travel to in the movie. The wonderful Hackaday.org website reported on this and offered a reward for any hacker who could make his own working version of the hoverboard technology and share the instructions with everybody. A day later, Gelmeister came forward with a project he'd already been working on and claimed the Hackaday Prize. Now anyone can build their own. Gelmeister wrote, Get some powerful magnets, some brushless outrunners, controllers and lipos, and a thick sheet of aluminium, and you can get things hovering quite quickly. Just make a ring of magnets, arranged alternately north and south, and spin them. It's that easy. Make them in counter-rotating pairs to cancel out the drag, and have enough to make a stable hoverbot, and you are done. Links to the Hendo hoverboard, the Gelmeister instructions, and videos of each will be up on the episode page on www.diffusionradio.com. Great scientific advances are oftentimes sudden accomplished facts before most of us are even dimly aware of them. Breathtakingly unexpected, for example, was the searing flash that announced the atomic age. Equally unexpected was the next gigantic stride. In far off 2015, hovering has replaced the wheel. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Solving environmental crimes using wildlife forensics. Inspiring Australia is hosting monthly talks by scientists at libraries around Sydney. This month I went to the Customs House Library at Circular Quay to speak with Dr Greta Frankham. She works at the Australian Centre for Wildlife Genomics at the Australian Museum Research Institute. We spoke in the library, so Greta worked hard to be loud enough for the recording, but quiet enough not to bother other people in the library. I began by asking her, what are wildlife forensics? Currently we just do a lot of the actual DNA identification of things that have been seized through the wildlife trade in Australia. It's wildlife trade and fisheries infringements that we mainly deal with, um, and it's when the animals are not in their entirety, so they need to come to us and to get a species identification through um, a DNA test. And you had a whole list of environmental crimes, and you pointed out that some of them fund terrorist groups. Yes, there was a recent report that came out from Interpol. It suggested that a lot of the wildlife or environmental crime is funding terrorist groups. It also involves organised crime and insurgencies, as well as corrupt sort of movements. So it's not just people thinking they can make a buck out of it here or there. Because of the low risk in terms of it as a crime, there's not such high levels of prosecution. A lot of the big organised crime groups and terrorist groups see it as an easier way to make money instead of things like the trade in illegal weapons or drugs trade. 
So what are some of the ways that you investigate this? Well, a lot of the investigation is done by people in who work for the government. So the enforcement officers for the Department of Environment or fisheries and those sort of people, they do the on the ground investigation and then they come to us and we can do this. We can work the magic and the science. So we can do the DNA tests to identify what species it is, which then helps them know what what laws have been broken, which legislation needs to be enacted, and because there's lots of different tiers of laws that may be involved. <laughs> so we need to feed the scientific information about what species it is. It, is. it may be what gender of animal it is, or it may be where in the world the animal has come from, which we can, we can do with DNA testing. And you've had to investigate cases where people have been smuggling animals into Australia? Yes, we often get calls for, it's mainly birds that get smuggled into Australia. Also, the reptile trade is quite big because it's very popular for pets. So when those uh, get smuggled into Australia, we mostly deal with the bird eggs because it's not obvious what species it is when it's brought into the country. We often, if it's something like a, a live reptile or something like that, we might talk to our morphologists at the museum because they can identify based on morphology the species that are involved. And morphology is the shape? Uh, yes, so the, the physical characteristics of the animal, the shape, the colour, the size. So those are often very indicative of what species or different species based on different patterns or colours or shapes. And some of the animals they want to introduce could be quite a problem if they got loose. Uh, yes, we all know that Australia has a really unique fauna assemblage already so when something comes into the environment that could upset it it can be a major problem we've all seen that with the introduction of things like foxes and the cane toad so sometimes species that are brought in that are popular in the pet trade may also be actually very good at invading and establishing their own populations so we don't want that to happen I suppose also there are pest species that come in as well so that's also an issue. And on the fishery side, there's things like shark finning. Uh, yes, yeah, so shark finning, it's been a very big industry for a long time. Shark fins are quite popular as a, a food item in some parts of the world, especially Asia. So shark finning is very detrimental to shark biodiversity across the world. Um, animals are caught, their shark, their fins are removed, and then they're just dumped in the ocean. So the animals drown, so it's also a very cruel way of killing an animal. But we've been called in to identify the species of shark fins that have been seized off boats coming in back into ports in Australia. We can't just have a shark fin on board, that's illegal. It must still be attached to the animal if you do have, if you are allowed to fish sharks. Because a shark fin in itself is very hard to identify species, they will come to the DNA lab at the museum and ask us if we can do a DNA identification. And based on that identification of species, they can then um, enact the right punishments or proceed with prosecution. It may be an endangered species or it may be a species listed under the CITES Convention, which is the Convention of International Trade of Endangered Species. And you also have been called to investigate crimes of cruelty to animals, like the cockatoos. Uh, yeah, sometimes we are rung up by the police and they ask us to come in and look at animal cruelty cases so yes I gave an example in the talk today where someone had driven their car through a flock of cockatoos and so we matched the blood spatter on the, the suspect's car to that of being we identified it as that of cockatoo so that was then that ev that evidence led to a charge of animal cruelty we don't do that 
that often, but we have been involved in several animal cruelty cases. Um, we do do a bit of research that will hopefully go a long way to helping us better combat wildlife trade. So we do, we're working, we've got uh, students working on developing better genetic markers so that we can identify rhino horns to the rhino, individual rhino that it came from as well as having a nice and easy species test. So there are several different species of rhino out there and so it's good to know what species of rhino we're dealing with. They're all under the same sort of poaching pressures, but some, the black rhino versus the right rhino in uh, Africa, they have different population numbers, so there are subtle differences in how they need to be managed. So we, first we need to know what species it is, then we can track back to the populations and then hopefully better combat the wildlife trade in that area. And you had stories about uh, testing ivory with hot needles. Uh, yeah, so there's several different ways that we can test if ivory that is seized is actually ivory because product mislabeling or fraudulent, trying to sell ivory, something that's not ivory is ivory, happens because, of course, it is an expensive commodity. So if you can cheat someone out of a lot of money, if you're a criminal, that's a good thing. <laughs> so there's several different ways to identify ivory. First of all, we can look at patterns in the ivory itself. There are nice chevron patterns in ivory if it's cut the right way. We can identify ivory that way or we can do the hot pin test. That'll help us identify between bone or ivory because sometimes they can look very similar. And then we can also do DNA testing for ivory and we can identify whether the ivory that has been seized has come from Africa. So, so an African elephant or Asia, so an Asian elephant. So what's the next challenge for you? Currently we do a lot of I'd say service providing where we we do the DNA testing for other organisations but we do really want to build up the, our innovation in this area and do more be able to put more resources into researching and and coming up with better ways to help combat wildlife trade in the future so it's something that we're definitely trying to build as a strength within our lab it's one of the many different things that we do in the Australian Centre for Wildlife Genomics one of the more exciting and interesting things that we definitely do. And how did you get into the forensic side of things? Well, it's started at the museum about 10 years ago. We've been doing them sort of on an ad hoc basis since then, and that was prior to when me joining the museum. Um, I've come in now and I've, I've just seen it as a really exciting application of skills that I already had. I've done a lot of scientific research, but this is sort of applying them to actual problems that are happening now and seeing actual outcomes. So I find it really interesting. Well, Greta? Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Dr Greta Frankham from the Australian Centre for Wildlife Genomics at the Australian Museums Research Institute. You can find out more at australianmuseum.net.au slash ACWG and follow her on Twitter at Greta Frankham. The next Inspiring Science Talk will be at Ultimo Library on Wednesday the 5th of November at 6pm. Dr Christopher Casanelli explains carotenoids, why vegetables are good for us. And Dr. Vanessa Moss talks about ancient galaxies and cosmic timescales. Water divining, or dowsing, has been in the news lately, so I consulted an expert. Richard Saunders is a life member of the Australian Skeptics, committee member of the James Randi Educational Foundation's Million Dollar Challenge, CSI Committee for Skeptical Inquiry Fellow in the United States, and investigator of the strange and mysterious. I met up with Richard in a quiet art studio at the top of the Central Park's Living Mall in the centre of Sydney. I began by asking Richard about his experience with water divining and dowsing. Oh yeah, over the years of my involvement with Australian Skeptics, 
I've tested many water diviners, especially down in Victoria. It's quite popular to do that. And Australian Skeptics was really kicked off in the early 80s by a visit by James Randi, who did a big water divining test. So there's one thing I know backwards and frontwards, it's water divining. How accurate would you estimate water divining is? It's not. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a fiction. It doesn't, it, it, there's no such thing. So the, the, it's, it's as accurate as, as random chance would, would predict. Now what we're talking about here is the, is the way that uh, the rods move or the pendulum swings back and forth with the claim that the water under the ground is making those rods move and the pendulum swings back and forth. It's not. It's the water diviners themselves tilting their hands and swinging their arms and things which makes the rods move. The delusion, which is called the idiomotor action, is people think that it's a caused by the underground water or the gold or whatever they're looking for where it's a psychological effect. It's the muscles of the hand moving uh, very subtly and unbeknownst to the water diviner. They don't know they're moving their hands. The rods move. They put two or two together, come up with five, and think it's the underground water or whatever it's, uh, the case is. So it's a very convincing feeling that the rods are moving independent of you when that's not actually true. Absolutely right. And it's so convincing that I I've met many 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 water diviners over the years and we've dealt with many not a one of them can accept the fact that they've been tricking themselves which I can understand it's really hard to accept that fact you don't want to think you've ever been fooling yourself especially when your life is wrapped up in something and the idiomotor effect so when you try to hold your hand still you're actually moving it slightly forwards and backwards and up and down to hold it in place is that the sort of unconscious movement that's affected by these suggestions that water will make the rods move along those lines yeah remember divining rods are usually quite delicately balanced so they're 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 in the hands of the diviner and they can swing back and forth with the tiniest movement of the hand now I've been doing this for so many years now I can make the rods move any way I wish and you can't see you can't see I'm doing that and the rods appear to be moving all by themselves but when the diviner does it they have no concept that their hands are twitching or moving or the muscles are doing these fine adjustments the rods amplify that movement greatly and swing about and they they're convinced it's something else is there any chance that the people who are doing the water divining have a intuitive or unconscious knowledge of geology that would give them a clue where water might be to give them some genuine hits? There's a chance. I don't think there's been any proper studies done into this. Uh, it'd be very difficult to do because they're already convinced it's the sticks. So I don't think they would be happy to go out and just walk around and say, yeah, I think it's here or I think it's there. That's not what their life is about. Their life is about these sticks moving or the, or the pendulum moving. But you might be right. They, they might have a feel for the land. Some, you know, guys who've been, and men and women who've been out in the, the countryside all their lives. Some subconscious feeling for the land. I just don't know. I just don't know because it's never been really tested. People who haven't seen the divining rods, could you give a description of what it looks like when someone tries to do water divining? Well, divining rods come in all shapes and sizes. They're quite extraordinary. Uh, I use, for demonstration purposes, I use coat hangers, which are bent in an L shape. I'm, I hold the, the, the shorter end of the L, and the long end of the L extends out from my body. 
and they they swing around like that. But some diviners use all manner of curved sticks or twigs or fork sticks. They're all different. Some use tiny little metal rods that just swing in there between their thumb and forefingers. Some use big pendulums. I saw one guy using a cricket ball. So <laughs> the common factor is, of course, all these devices are subject to EDO motor action. But of course, uh, diviners love to put their experiences or their knowledge up on YouTube. If you, you, if you Google or go to YouTube and look for water divining, uh, not only will you see many examples of diviners out there doing their stuff, and you can look at that carefully, but you will also find the documentaries I've been involved with, like the Mighty Mida Master Water Divining Challenge and the James Randi Test originally back in 1980. So there's a lot of material out there. So do you think there's a lot of cognitive biases coming in here where they don't remember the misses and they only remember the hits? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's a huge amount to do with it. If they're out on the land and they miss, for example, well, that's sometimes that happens. They'll, they'll miss, they'll, they'll put that to the back of their mind. They might not even remember the misses because the next time it worked or the next time it worked or it appeared to work. Uh, one of the, the things we've been saying for years is, um, so you think you can divine for water? Well, we'll put you out in the countryside and you tell us where there's not water. There's a lot of water out there. There's the idiomotor effect. There's this folk belief in water divining and dowsing that seems to go back to pre-scientific times. And there's the cognitive biases of remembering when it works and forgetting when it doesn't. Do you think there's anything else going on? That probably sums it up very well. Added to that, it, the, the sense of wonder, there's a slight wonder about it, which is very seductive to a lot of people. And to a lot of uh, water diviners, it's who they are. They're so-and-so, the water diviner. And they help people. And they really do go out there, you know, in their own minds and help farmers. And I've never met one who I wouldn't categorize as a really nice, good, genuine, kind person. I just don't believe that what they really think is happening is happening. And what do you think of the statements made by the incoming chief of CSIRO, Dr. Larry Marshall, that it, water divining would be a good topic for CSIRO to investigate? Oh, that's just pure ignorance. I mean, he, he, he probably, well, he can't have known the history of water divining testing and the science behind what we've discovered, the idiomotor action, the 100% failure rate over many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tests. Surely it's ignorance. It's sad or it's disappointing that someone in that position would have that level of ignorance. But you know what? We all live and learn. I think by now, I think the message would have got to him because it's been tweeted and Facebooked and even this report at the moment. So he might care to give it another careful look and he will soon discover the real science behind so-called water divining. Well, we can only hope so. Water divining is, is one of these wonderful things that it's, it's a great introduction to skepticism and critical thinking because it looks real and it's seductive and it's, and it's fun. You know, we, we, when we test water diviners, we have a, a, a good time uh, until the test results come back and all the water diviners fail and they're not so happy after that. And it's a good introduction to psychology too because no matter how many times a water diviner fails a test, 
it will not shake their belief in water divining. That, that's, that's locked. Those people are very close-minded because hopefully you and I and the listeners, if we're shown that our most sincerely held belief doesn't work or it can be explained by better means or something, we would all hope that we would at least take that on board and have a real careful think about it. Water diviners, that's not a concept they, that comes into their head. Water divining works, end of story. And you've let people play with water divining rods and with the mystery investigators. Mystery investigators is a show I'm, I'm involved with primarily for schools. And one of the tests we do or the demonstrations is water divining because it teaches the kids how to do a double blind test. And a double blind test is a great leveler. If you think you've got a, a power or a claim that really works, a double blind test can, can usually sort it out. But the kids have a ball. They love running around with rods looking for hidden water. Yeah. For, so for example, we have six buckets and we hide a bottle of water under a bucket. The important thing is the, the, the student who's coming up to have a go doesn't know which bucket the water is under and that's we roll a dice to determine that but the people who hid the water leave the room so nobody in the room knows where the water that where the, the the bottle is and this is teaching kids the importance of a double blind test so no clues are given to the water diviner by people fidgeting or coughing or whatever the case may be so it's a wonderful it's a wonderful demonstration too and people can hear you on The Skeptic Zone. The Skeptic Zone is a podcast I've been doing now for, oh, wow, six years, me and a, a group of friends, and that's at skepticzone.tv. Well, Richard Saunders, thank you very much. My pleasure. That was Richard Saunders talking about water divining. You can listen to his Skeptic Zone podcast at skepticzone.tv and find out more about the Australian skeptics at www.skeptics.com.au. That's Skeptics with a K. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production this week was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Coringai. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and apparently on astronomy.fm. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, Radio On Demand and On The Go. Download the free app from Stitcher.net and review Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, videos and photos about this week's show. I'm putting together a crowdfunding campaign for Diffusion on funscience.org.au. It's still going to be a few weeks before we go live. I'd really appreciate hearing from you about the funder rewards you think I should offer. Would you make a donation in return for hearing your voice on Diffusion? How much should I charge for you to read one of my scripts on air or to read one of your own scripts on the show? 
I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take us out, here's Dorothy Collins with It's a Magnet. With your kind permission, we would like to say hello And to entertain you with a scientific show What's the first attraction, would you really like to know? Yes! What's the first attraction? It's a magnet! Ladies and gentlemen, here's the kind of magnet that is called a bar North and south are marked on the magnet If you're ever lost and wonder where you are Just hang the magnet from a string and presto change Oh, the magnet becomes a compass It's the kind of magnet that we say is permanent It can do so many things and with your kind consent We would like to show you in our first experiment What's the big attraction in a magnet? Observe the magnet in my hand, ladies and gentlemen. Also, observe the collection of things on the table. I bring the magnet to a nail. Is the nail attracted to the magnet? Yes! That's because it's made of iron. Here's a penny. Is it attracted to the magnet? No! The penny is made of copper. Will the magnet attract this paper clip or this safety pin? Yes! That's because they both contain iron. How about this rubber band? No! What else is attracted to a magnet? Try it yourself and find out. Magnets are attractive, but it's time to move on And to put a happy ending to the magnet song When we ask the question, give the answer loud and strong Ready? What's the big attraction? It's a magnet! magnet.